Thank you for listening to the World Religions Podcast. This is recorded at Beaver Creek Church of the Nazarene in a classroom setting, so from time to time you will note that there are questions asked by the class that you may not be able to hear. Unfortunately, that is a restriction due to the nature of the podcast recording environment, and I will do my best to reproduce those questions for you so that you can hear them and engage in them, but again, from time to time, you may just not be able to hear the questions that are asked. If you would like to access the slides for this class, you may find them at slideshare.net slash jrforesteros. That's slideshare.net slash jrforesteros. All of the other episodes are also available at my blog, jrforesteros.com, and I would love to hear from you on Twitter or Facebook if you have any questions or engagement about any of these episodes. Thank you for listening, and without any further ado, here is the World Religions Podcast. We begin our discussion of agnosticism by reviewing Paul's approach to evangelism with the Athenians at Mars Hill. And so what we're going to do tonight is talk about a basic introduction to the, world, to the worldview of agnosticism, which is going to be tricky because there isn't a particular worldview, but we're just going to try to sketch out uh, more. It'd be more appropriate to say we're going to sketch out the trends and the historical uh, trajectories that have made agnosticism possible and popular today. And so we'll kind of get a sense of the sort of the, the, the walls of the basket that hold agnosticism. And we'll say, again, this is, this is why there's all kinds of people inside of these boundaries that believe all kinds of different things. But we're talking about the basic outlines, if you will. Then we're going to talk about some areas of agreement between people who are agnostic and Orthodox Christian theology and practice. And we'll talk about the important areas of disagreement between people who are agnostic and Orthodox Christianity. And the goal will be to equip you to build truth-seeking relationships with people who are agnostic. So, on with agnosticism, which I called in the syllabus moralistic therapeutic deism. And we'll get into that label uh, in a little bit. So, first of all, we need to review, and we started talking about this last week, that when we think of religion, most of us think strictly of belief in God. And so when we approach someone and we want to know what their religion is, we start by saying, well, what God do you believe in? Or when we say, what religion do you follow? That's, that's really sort of what we are trying to get at. But uh, religion is much, much more than just a belief in God, as you've seen in this class. Uh, religion encompasses an entire worldview. It's a way of seeing the world, a way of understanding the uh, the way reality is structured and the principles by which reality operates. And again, mostly those get attributed to some deity, some god of some kind. But as we saw last week with atheism, or if you go all the way back to Buddhism, there are some philosophies or uh, religions that don't appeal to any sort of a higher power. And so you have to be careful about limiting religion to just a belief in God. And particularly when we're talking about last week, atheism, and this week, agnosticism, you see that if you restrict religion to just belief in God, you miss a whole bunch of people who still see the world in a particular way, who still have a certain set of assumptions about how things work and about who we are. And so if you expand it to include all of those assumptions and say, well, that when we talk about religion, that's what we're talking about. We're really talking about worldview. Then that allows you to begin conversations with, uh, with other people who don't fit nicely into those categories. So again, just to continue to review from last week, theism is belief in God. Strict, strong belief saying if, if you say, yes, there is a God, then you're a theist of some kind. Okay. Atheism, which we talked about last week, is the strict, strong belief that there is no God. 
Agnosticism, which is really where we're going to be this week, is that squishier middle place. They say, oh, we don't know. And there are several different kinds of not knowing. Some people say we just don't know. Other people say, well, we can't know. That, that for some reason, whether we are too limited or God is too beyond us or whatever, um, that there might be something out there, but um, we can't know enough about that thing that's out there to make any kind of a difference, so it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. And again, there's a whole other group called non-theists, uh, which I sort of lump into a little bit into agnosticism tonight, who would just say, I don't care. I don't really ever think about it. It's not something that consumes my thoughts. Um, it's not that they don't believe. It's they just don't believe or believe. They just don't, they don't think about it. Which again, for someone who is a Christian who thinks about God a lot, is a really strange thing to try to wrap your head around. Like we think, like how can you, how can you just not? What do you mean you just don't think about it? Like how can you not think about it? that's? I think about that all the time, and they just don't. They're different, so they're not theists. So tonight we're going to be focusing mainly on agnosticism, where we're going to we're going to review a little bit of stuff from atheism. We're going to tread a little bit into the non-theist territory, but we're really going to spend most of our time with those people who say they just don't know. Uh, they just don't know. Okay. So first, as we're talking about the history and the worldview uh, of agnosticism, again, because agnosticism is such a squishy category, it's more helpful to say, well, these are the ideas that have developed that make agnosticism make sense, or these are the historical trajectories that our culture has been on for the last 500, 600, 700 years that make agnosticism make sense. And so uh, as long as you understand that we're sort of building some boundaries around agnosticism and say, well, well, people that are agnostic tend to be inside of this big uh, belief box that we're building somewhere. Uh, and then the first one is one that we talked about last week. It's, it's, it's the switch from the pre-modern world to the modern world. And the biggest difference between those two worldviews was where knowledge comes from, uh, where morality comes from. And in the pre-modern world, knowledge came down to humanity from the gods. So we had the Ten Commandments, which are a great example of a pre-modern understanding of morality. People needed to know how to behave. Moses went up a mountain. God came down to the mountain. God gave Moses Ten Commandments and a bunch of other laws. And then Moses brought them back down to the people and said, these are from God. Do them. And, and, the, and, and the main reason that you did them is because they were from God. Now, you could argue about them, and, and, and the Jewish people did, if you go all the way back to the week we did on Judaism. They used their reason and their logic to talk about the laws and to figure them out and to add some new ones and, and stuff like that. So the, it's not like they just sort of blindly accepted them. But at the, at the end of the day, the reason they were true was because they came from God. Now, in the modern world, everything changed. Uh, last week, we talked about Descartes saying, I think, therefore, I am that the foundational principle of human existence was that we are rational beings, that we have a brain, that we can use our reason to figure things out. And so now we had laws that were not revealed. They were, uh, the, the, one of the key phrases of the Enlightenment was that they were self-evident. Okay, that whenever God made everything, he set up the world in such a way that, that morality was self-evident, that you could use your reason and your logic to figure it out. And so morality wasn't revealed from God. Morality was figured out by people. And so you had all of these philosophers like Hume and Descartes and Locke and all the guys from Lost, right? And they, <laughs> and they figured out and they, had, they wrote these huge books that were arguing for their particular ideas of morality and justifying why their system of government was the best and why their understanding of capital punishment was the best and why but everything came down to that they could argue it they could use their reason to prove it 
Because it didn't matter anymore what God said unless you could use your reason to prove it. So Descartes, when he said, I think, therefore I am, he doubted everything, even God, except for the fact that he could think. But then once he established that the core thing that he knew was that he was a rational being, he went back and proved God and proved how the Christian God was reliable and trustworthy. And, and then he could believe in the Bible again, but only because his reason had told him that it was reliable. That's a huge switch. It completely inverts everything from the pre-modern world. Now, it's not, now reason and logic are, are not subsumed under revelation. They, they, they uh, overtake it. And now even what's revealed has to go through the filter of human reason. And if, if, if God said it, well, it needs to make sense before we can just embrace it. And it has to fit with all these other things we figured out. Now, what that led to was humanism. Okay? The conviction that people are enough. Right? That, that all, we, all we really need to be fulfilled in life is, is ourselves. And that the, the highest form of existence is humans. This, again, you've probably heard this in, in school and stuff like that, but when you look at the Enlightenment, you even see this in art, that, that art even goes from humans as being these just sort of like placeholder figures to these really well-crafted uh, sculptures and paintings, and all of a sudden the human figure became so much more important because in this time period, everything was being, all the emphasis was being placed on humanity. Now, as that process of, rash, uh, of rationalism began to take hold and we developed the scientific method and scientists began to f explore the universe and all of that, another phenomenon that we talked about last week was this thing called the God of the Gaps, where scientists kept explaining natural phenomenon. That's what science does. It explains the natural world. And on and on and on, there became fewer and fewer things that humans attributed to God. All of a sudden, we understood weather. We understood illness. We understood uh, all of these. We understood physics, right? An object at rest will remain at rest unless acted upon by, uh, by an outside force. We, the laws of physics, right? All of a sudden, all of these things that before people had attributed to God uh, became explainable through purely natural phenomena. And so there were fewer and fewer places in the scientific worldview where God fit, where God made sense. And, and eventually we got a shift away from this idea that, that God was active in the world to this idea that God was distant from the world. And so this led to uh, an outlook called materialism, which basically said that everything in the world is just what we experience. It's just matter. There is no supernatural. That anything that we can't explain, eventually science is going to be able to figure out. Uh, there are no such things as mysteries and miracles anymore. They're just unexplained scientific phenomena. And at first we thought maybe there was some room for God, but eventually we kind of decided, you know, science has got this. We don't really need God anymore. Everything is explainable through purely natural phenomena. And again, anything that's not, well, it's just because we haven't figured it out yet, but we're going to. We'll get there. It's inevitable. It's a matter of time. And so as God began, as, as God was removed from the pictures, there was less and less space in the modern mind for God, we began to see the world not as this organic place that God was actively sustaining, but more like a big machine. And so you, you actually see philosophers and scientists start to refer to the world this way, that it's not this, thing that it's not this thing that God is actively constantly creating. It's more like a thing that God set up one time and then walked away from. And, you know, God set it all in place and created it and created all the natural laws and all the natural phenomena, but then God left it alone. And God is not 
really around anymore. Um, there isn't really anything for God to do, and so God is off doing who knows what, but God doesn't intervene in the world anymore. And so, for instance, you have uh, one, of, one of the more famous examples of this would be like the Jefferson Bible, where Thomas Jefferson, uh, who was a deist, uh, sorry, so this, sorry, this, uh, this religious system is called deism, where, again, the world becomes more like this big clock. So um, Thomas Jefferson was a deist. Deists did not believe in miracles. Right? You, you, in, in a closed universe where God set everything up and walked away, miracles don't happen. And anytime you see a miraculous phenomenon, remember, that's just something that science hasn't explained yet. It's not, God does not intervene. It's a closed system. And so Jefferson famously produced what he called the Jefferson, I don't know if he called it the Jefferson Bible, but there is, he produced a Bible that is now called the Jefferson Bible. You can buy it on Amazon. And he went through the New Testament and cut out all of the miracles. Because he said, I think that this thing's true except for the fictional parts. And so we went through and he just removed all the miraculous stuff from the New Testament and then kept basically like the teachings. So there, you know, Jesus never walked on water and there was no resurrection and, and all of that kind of stuff. And you were sort of left with this like moral teaching document that, that, that again, very well fit with the modern mind because it was basically a bunch of cerebral principles, right? It was Jesus saying things like, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you and love your neighbor as yourself. And the, these kinds of really nice enlightenment principles that their reason could agree with. But any of those things that were a little bit fantastic or a little bit out of this world were excised. And, and Jefferson was far from the only person during the Enlightenment to do this. This was, this was You saw this all the time, even in some of the best biblical scholarship schools. Um, so, yeah, just all over the place. And that, again, that was a product of deism. That was a product of people seeing less and less use for God in the world. Uh, the, the last piece of this that we need to understand is globalization. Um, beginning in the Enlightenment, but accelerating rapidly up until our day, the world has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. And what that means is that in the medieval world, you might never travel more than 20 miles or so from your house, from the, literally from the place where you were born, in your entire life, ever. And rarely, if ever, did people from another culture come see you, right? Unless you maybe happen to live near one of the big trading cities. But most people in the entire world lived their entire lives without ever encountering someone who didn't speak the same dialect as them, let alone the same language. And in, in our day, you know that that's totally not the case anymore. Now the world is so small, and, and the number of people who, for instance, have traveled outside of the United States uh, has just gone up astronomically. The number of people who've traveled outside of Ohio. You know, we have a number of people in here who, are, who live thousands of miles from where they were born or where they grew up. And, and so the world is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and people are constantly encountering other cultures and other belief systems and people who just don't see the world the same way they do. And that, that has changed how we understand other cultures and it has changed our exposure to other cultures. So that all sets the stage for how we can talk about agnosticism today. So are there, I want to pause there. Are there any questions about, we just covered a lot of information pretty quickly. So are there any questions about any of that before we move forward? Yeah, Nick. Uh, you said the Jefferson Bible removed all the miracles or things that weren't explained. Is there a different Bible that contains everything, like the Bible we see today? Like our Bible? Well, I mean, the one that we use today, is it the most complete? Yeah, there yeah, yeah, yeah. Things were removed, no, no, no. put back? Uh, yeah, so the question is, is there, uh, there are other examples of things being removed and put back. Uh, the scripture that we have, the Bible that we use, for instance, um, on, on, on our, in our personal Bible study, the one you can go down to the Christian bookstore and buy or whatever, uh, is considered 
canon by all Protestant churches. Now, if you were in a Catholic church or an Eastern Orthodox church, it would be another little group of books called the Apocrypha. Um, but those are considered a second canon. They're not considered like the full canon. Uh, so what you have, the 66 books that comprise our Old and New Testament, is what the universal Christian church considers the full, complete scriptures. And as far as uh, the reliability of the manuscripts, we are more sure that what we have represents the original author's writings than we are of, say, like Shakespeare or Homer or basically any other ancient author. So, yeah. And, and, and Jeff, uh, Jefferson wasn't, like, sneaky about it. He didn't, like, go into a bunch of churches and cut things out and hope no one noticed. Like, he was, like, he was, like, he was, like, he was like, miracles are dumb. This is, this is the way it should be, you know. If you know anything about Jefferson, he was not soft-spoken about really anything. So, um, and, and again, he was not, it's not like when he did it, everyone's like, what's that crazy Thomas Jefferson doing? Like, come on, TJ, get it together. Um, he, he was part of a tradition of, there were a lot of people doing this kind of stuff. A lot of, a lot of scholars in Germany, uh, who are, and they were considered some of the cutting-edge scholars. There's, there's one guy, I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but he explained, again, he didn't believe that there could be miracles, um, but he wanted to hold on to the scriptures, and so he explained every single miracle, in, at least in the New Testament, if not in the whole Bible, through natural phenomena. So, like, when Jesus walked on water, he said, oh, well, Jesus was just the only person who knew, like, all the places in the Sea of Galilee that you could walk, where there were rocks that you could get all the way across, and, like, he found it and no one else knew them. And you're like, okay, <laughs> like, I guess, I guess that's easier to believe than that he could just walk on water, um, but... You saw that you saw that all the time, but, but again, because the entire the entire uh, civilization was was making this move towards this idea that there just could not be anything supernatural, and that that the entire system was closed, and that God had walked away from it. That that was that was the uh, that was what the best minds of the time were coming up with. I mean, this was this was like bleeding edge scholarship, and so you saw people from all all different walks of life trying to make sense of this. So, good. Any other questions? Okay, let's go on there and talk a little bit about agnosticism today. Again, you're just going to find a lot of different kinds of agnostics. And so the best advice I can give you is when you encounter someone who describes themselves as an agnostic, do, do a little bit of research. Ask them to tell, tell you a little bit about that. Ask them to describe some of their beliefs and, and be ready to share yours as well. But uh, there is a group of agnostics that would be considered post-Christian. And these are, are similar in a lot of ways to the post-Christian atheists. They're people who probably grew up in a church, but were also not encouraged or allowed to ask a lot of questions. And so eventually their questions got too big for whatever faith they had been given as, as kids. And so they left. And they would still probably have a great affection for Jesus. In fact, you'll hear a lot of these kinds of people say, like, I love Jesus. I'm just not a big fan of the church, I think, which we'll talk about a little bit more later. Um, but again, they're, they're people who probably know a little bit of Jesus' teachings, and they, they probably have some really, really good questions um, to address. Uh, another group of people would be the people who'd self-describe as spiritual but not religious. And these people would say, uh, these are the people who would say, you know, like, I believe there's some kind of higher power. You know, they, they have these mystical encounters, like, you know, when they're out in the woods or hiking up a mountain or at the birth of a child or, you know, maybe just listening to a song on the radio and that, that transcendent moment catches them. So they believe in the spiritual. They believe in the supernatural. Um, but they don't think that uh, any religion is the right religion. Or, or maybe, in, in conversely, they might think all religions are the right religion, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So again, they're not going to self-identify as anything. Uh, they may or may not have been raised in, in a church or in some other faith. 
Uh, but they are very excited about the idea of God or a God of some kind, but particularly about the idea of spirituality, of, of being in a world that's more than just what meets the eye. Uh, another group, again, I told you we'd lump them in here, are kind of the non-theists. These are people that they just don't really think about God at all. And so if you ask them, they'll be like, I don't know. These are people that they just don't, um, they don't ever really consider the supernatural. They don't really ever uh, ponder these experiences. And then there's a fourth group. And I describe them as seekers mainly because this is a group of people that probably really, they really would say that they want to understand truth, that they want, they think there is an answer, they just haven't found it yet. And so they're trying, actively trying to figure it out. They're probably exploring different religions. Uh, they're probably way, they're probably reading tons of philosophy and religion, and then they, they desperately want to know. This is different from the spiritual but not religious, probably more by degree than kind. Um, they're just really, really actively trying to find truth. But, but all of these people would say, you know, I just don't know. I'm not sure that anyone can know. You'll, you'll hear things like that. So let's talk about now some of the basic beliefs that you'll probably encounter in a lot of agnostics. And again, I'm painting with a broad brush. I'm going to miss a lot of people. Uh, but this is, this is really in, in, a, in a catch-all category like this. This is the best that I can do. So be gentle to me. Here's where I want to talk about moralistic therapeutic deism. This is a sociologist named Christian Smith, and he coined this phrase in a book that's called Soul Searching, the Religious and Spiritual Life of the American Teenagers. Uh, but I thought it was a really appropriate uh, label for a, a lot of agnostic persons that I've met. And um, these three terms we're going to unpack here in a minute, but they really go a long way towards describing what you see when you see a lot of people who are religious or who are spiritual but outside the traditional categories of religion, when you see how they act, this is, how you, this is what you see in a lot of them. There is no church of moralistic therapeutic deism. You can't go to their website and download a belief statement. Uh, this is not an organized group of people. And in fact, that's one of, the, one of the big criticisms that's been levied against him and against this book is that exact problem. Uh, even with atheists, like they have a group, they have beliefs, they have, you know, organization. Uh, but this is, a, this is a label that someone who is not this kind of a person has slapped onto a big group of people to sort of help us understand them, and it breaks down. So again, that's why, that's why I went ahead and called the weak agnosticism instead of moralistic therapeutic deism. But uh, as we unpack these beliefs, I think you'll find them helpful. So first of all, and actually before we get into to any of those three, uh, we need to talk about where humanism ends up leading. Uh, humanism leads to the belief, if you believe that, the, that humans are good enough on their own and that what's, what's the best kind of thing is the individual person, then it, it leads to the belief that the greatest possible good is personal liberty. Okay, And what that means is if you allow people the maximum amount of freedom, then that will accomplish human flourishing. Okay, when each and every person has the freedom to do whatever they want, so long as that does not infringe on the rights of anyone else to do whatever they want, then that will bring the greatest good for society. And again, that is a, that is a staunch enlightenment principle. It's one that our country has obviously embraced. But, but that, that is a belief, and you'll find a lot of people that say that, that say, I should be free to do whatever I want as long as I'm not hurting other people. 
And, and a criticism you'll hear of religions is they get in the way of that. Religions are these rules that keep people from doing what they want. And what that reveals is that, that value. You think, if you say that, then you think that doing whatever you want is a good thing. And maybe it is or maybe it isn't, but well, like, we need to identify that that's a belief. Okay? And again, that come yeah, Mike. But no man's an island, right? I mean, that's even in pop songs. Yeah, yes. I mean, yep. If you're not an island, then anything you do is going to affect somebody. Mm -hmm. As long as it, and so they would argue, as long as it doesn't affect them negatively. No. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Okay. Now, when we talk about moralism, here's what we believe. Uh, rationalism, this idea that human reason is enough, that that's the best thing, that that's the thing that is the, the main source of revelation of truth. Rationalism gives rise to what we could call moralism. Uh, if you were a highlights reader ever and you remember Goofus and Gallant, that's a great example of moralism, right? That we can all figure out right and wrong and that we just all need to be good. We need to be moral. There is an assumption in moralism that good people go to heaven. Okay? That as long as you're just good, or at least more good than bad, then, then you're going to go to heaven. Uh, and something, this is, where, this is where agnosticism gets fun, because again, because there's no set belief structure, you end up getting a, sort of a, a potpourri of different religious ideas. Uh, something that is very popular in American agnosticism is the Hindu idea of karma. Uh, the idea that basically reality is a big set of scales and every time you do something bad, something bad is going to come back on you. And every time you do something good, good things are going to come back on you. Now, that's a thoroughly Hindu idea. And within the Hindu system, it makes a whole lot of sense with the way they think the world works and is structured and everything. But agnosticism is it particularly, it's not Hindu. So they sort of, they pluck the idea of karma out because it makes sense and it's easy to think about. And they, you, you'll hear a ton of people, actually I hear lots of Christians talk about karma all the time. And I'm like, you know, that's not actually what we believe, right? But, um, but that's the idea, is that, is that the world, the, the universe is essentially moral. And that you just need to be good and you need to do more good things than you do bad things. And if you do that, then you'll be all right in the end. That, that's a whole set of beliefs. The Christians do believe sin has consequences. Mm -hmm. that's, but that's, that's not, not karma. karma. That is not karma at all. In fact, the cross is anti-karma. The cross says all of those bad things that you did that you deserve, God took them on himself. And the cross is a radically, radically unfair statement of God's grace. So... Uh, okay, so here's, Mike asked a good question. He says, if you're a rationalist, how do you even get to the idea that there's a heaven? Uh, this is where agnosticism is, where I said before, it's not a belief structure. You don't, find, you don't find any agnostic philosophers who are arguing these things out clearly. And so what you find with a lot of people who are agnostic is that these beliefs don't, they, they're not really uh, often particularly thought through. And the other thing is a lot of agnostics aren't strict materialists. A lot of agnostics allow for the supernatural, and so the idea of heaven's fine for them. Um, but but a lot of a lot of these beliefs can be held in, in contradiction and tension. And again, that they haven't 
don't necessarily have a problem. I mean, I've, I've again, I've just had conversations with lots of people where within the span of 20 or 30 minutes, they'll tell me two wildly contradictory things, and when I point that out, they go, uh, what? <laughs> I just believe that. I'm like, okay, uh, okay. I, okay, you believe, you, you're entitled to believe whatever you want, and I can't make you not be self-contradictory. So that's fine, I guess. Uh, I, I, I kind of stopped the conversation. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so uh, next, when I talk about therapeutic, uh, this is, uh, last week we talked about progressivism, which is the idea that the universe is, uh, that we're constantly getting better, right? That uh, every, that, that uh, you know, we started out as cavemen, and then we developed fire, and then we got tools, and then we got metal, and then we got computers, and now we have, you know, genetic technology, and the world's just constantly getting better and better and better and better. Uh, again, probably will not be a big surprise to a lot of you. What that has led to is an obsession with self-esteem. Um, what you find with a lot of people is that the, they have the idea that the universe is essentially here for our pleasure and that what if they think about any kind of a God at all, that God wants us mainly to be happy. And you can kind of even hear echoes of that when we talked about personal freedom. What mainly matters is that I get to do what I want, that I'm happy. And that that's what God is mainly concerned about. And so that's what we should all be mainly concerned about. And then when we talk about deism, of course, it's now that this is interesting because the way that Christian Smith used deism is pretty markedly different from the way the Enlightenment era used deism. And you'll see that uh, in just a second. But essentially... Uh, the, this idea of deism led to this, led to this sense that a lot of people had that God is not intimately involved in the world. God is there, but only interve intervenes occasionally. And it might be to help someone who's really good, or maybe it's in response to a prayer. In fact, you'll find a lot of agnostic people who are very prayerful people. And they'll, they'll freely admit, I'm not sure who I'm praying to, but I believe that there's someone there who's good and he wants to help me. And so I pray. And so there you can see that's a very different concept of a deistic God than what the Enlightenment people use. They would say, praying is dumb, uh, doesn't change you, or it doesn't change God. You're, you're praying to someone who's not listening and who's not going to come and intervene. So if, if prayer works at all, it's only because it changes stuff in your own head. Um, and and, it, and a, a lot of agnostic people would, would affirm that prayer is a really good thing and it's something that they do a lot. Uh, but still, God is not involved in the everyday world. Um, there might be miracles ever, occasionally, but they're the exception, not the rule. And, and mostly, God is not particularly concerned with what I'm doing as long as I'm happy, as long as I'm being a good person. Okay, any questions about any of those four key beliefs? Personal liberty, moralism, the therapeutic universe, and deism? All right, you guys are doing great. Oh, yeah, faith. Uh, well, okay, so Faith asked if they have, do they have any concept of sin if they believe that they can choose right and wrong. Uh, probably depends on the person who's on the particular agnostic person. Um, but most, I mean, most people that I encounter have a very real 
understanding of evil and they they look at they look at what has happened in the world and they say well when you look at what's happened it's pretty much because people have chosen to be really nasty i mean hitler stalin uh you know they they go through they go through the, the list that we can all go through in our heads right and they say if you look at that that was caused by people choosing to hurt other people and so yeah i believe uh i guess they would they would say that they believe in bad choices and they would believe in choices that hurt other people and they would certainly be against those kinds. again probably very against those kinds of things because they believe uh in personal liberty right that particularly if you're choosing things that are taking away someone else's life then you're certainly imposing on their choice and so that's that's a that's a very bad kind of a thing whether they would identify those things as sinful within the framework of christian theology probably not um but that's because they would be embracing an entire system of theology if they were doing that now they might call them sins just the same way that they believe in karma right um it might be a, it might be a kind of a well yeah that's a good that's a good word when i say sin people know i mean bad stuff that people choose so it, it works but not in the same way that we would say that sin separates us from god and we need jesus as atonement to reconnect they wouldn't go that far with it so good anyone else Sure, and again, an agnostic person would be fine with saying that. Maybe they sure. Yep. Okay, so a question I wanted to ask, because I thought it would be important for us to consider, and because there's some nice data that helps us make an answer of it, is particularly for these people who are very spiritual, who who do believe in some kind of a God and who are actively seeking God, why not Christianity? I mean, why not? And, and first, the, the, the kind of the, the, one of the main reasons for that is that there is a deep distrust, particularly among uh, the Gen Xers and then the, the generation below them, the millennials or whatever you call them, there's a deep distrust of institutions. Uh, you're talking about people who grew up, uh, they grew up after Vietnam, after Reagan, um, after the Kennedy assassination, uh, after the televangelism scandals of the 80s, in uh, the priest scandals of uh, just a few years ago. And so everywhere a lot of these younger generations have looked, they've seen the institutions failing in, in fairly large, spectacular ways. And, and so if you, compare, uh, if you compare previous generations, like the greatest generation or the, uh, the baby boomers, and their attitude towards things like church and state, they're very, very different. Um, and so uh, just from, from the outset, a big building that has a cross on it can be very off-putting to a lot of younger people, a lot of those people who are agnostics who would consider themselves seekers, because what their impressions of church are tend to be very, very negative. Uh, and there was actually a book written several years ago called Unchristian. And it was, how many of you are familiar with the Barna Group? Any of you, it's a research group um, where they, they do a lot of polling and, and data and stuff like that. And so the guy who's kind of like the number two at the Barna Group, his name is Dave Kinneman. He, uh, he joined forces with a guy named Gabe Lyons, who is uh, another leader of kind of young and uh, upcoming church leaders. And they, they just decided, well, we want to know why all of these young people who really are spiritual and, and really do have some kind of, some kind of a faith in something, why, don't, why aren't they in churches? And so what they uncovered were six 
major perceptions that people outside of the church have about the church. Uh, and so they, they if, and if, if, if you are, if this is something that you're particularly interested in, I'd highly recommend this book. Uh, if you are a, a numbers nerd, then you will love this book. It is just number after number after statistic after fact. Um, and, and they outline they outline their research process. You're, if you understand any of the statistical stuff and all of that, then you, you understand all that really well. But it just goes through and it, it gives you the raw data of the perception that younger people have about the church that is keeping them out of the ch institution. So I'm going to go through these. That's probably going to make you mad. It made me mad when I read them for the first time. You're going to want to stand up and say, well, that's not true, and explain why it's not true. And I would say you should definitely do that, but not with me because I'm on your side. Um, so uh, again, this is just they asked people, and here's what people said. Okay, so you're hearing their opinions, and, and probably if after you simmer down a little bit and take a couple of deep breaths, you'll probably go, well, I kind of get why they think that. Uh, but but it's, a great, it's a great gut check for us to say, well, what, what picture of Jesus are we putting out? And are we being as faithful to Jesus as we can be? So here we go. Brace yourself. Um, I'm going to hide behind my computer for when you gather stones. Um, they said Christians are judgmental. That, that the first thing they feel when they meet a Christian is condemnation, not welcome. They said Christians are hypocritical. And again, this, that you can point right back to all those scandals that we talked about, right? That, that, that when Christians say one thing, they're probably doing something else. They said Christians are sheltered, that Christians tend to be out of touch with reality, that they live in their own little bubble and they're not engaged in the real world. They said Christians are anti-homosexual. And this one, um, this one actually sort of got uh, in the book. He did a couple of interesting things with it. Uh, but one of them was, it was a larger point that Christians tend to be known more for what we're against than what we're for. That, that Christians are, are much, much more vocal about the things we disagree with than the things that we embrace and celebrate. Uh, another one that he said, or that they said, was that when they interact with Christians, it seems like Christians only treat them as like a notch on a belt, that all Christians care about is getting them saved, and there's no actual concern for a genuine relationship with them, but that the entire relationship is oriented around what the, getting them to convert. And then the last one was that Christians are too political. Again, that what Christians mainly care about is pushing their political agenda, not about building relationships with people. Now, again, why I would highly encourage you, if any of these got you all worked up, uh, to, to read the book is because he does a really good job of talking about where, in their view, these assumptions came from and then how Christians can go about defusing some of those assumptions. Um, because if you look at that list... Well, okay, the top two are probably real bad. But, you know, we're a holiness church. We believe you go to sheltered. You know, we believe that people who follow Jesus ought to look different from the world. And so there's ways to do that without being out of touch with reality, right? Um, it is possible to not agree that homosexuality is a good, wholesome practice and not be anti-people who are gay. 
Um, it is possible to have a genuine, truth-seeking relationship with someone without only caring that, you get sa- that they get saved. And it is possible to be engaged in politics in a way that is loving and life-affirming, not in a way that is divisive and combative. And so, so uh, we, can, we can overcome these assumptions. And, and the, biggest, uh, the biggest boon that you have working in your favor if you, if you are making friendships with people who are agnostic is that it's much easier to do one-on-one than at an institutional level. Much, much easier to do one-on-one than at an institutional level. And so if you are building a truth-seeking relationship with another person, you can say, and they, they're like, you know what the problem with you Christians is, is you're all a bunch of hypocrites. You can be like, yep, here's a time when I was a hypocrite. What about you? You know, or like, yeah, that hurts me too. I get really mad when Christians are judgmental. I see those people protesting at military funerals, and I want to like drive by and throw paint cans at them or something. Like, you, you, you know, you can, you can agree with them about stuff. Or you can have some really, really good conversations. Uh... And hopefully if we all do that at an individual level, we can begin to, to shift some of, these, uh, some of these perceptions. Any questions about that? I don't want to, I know, I know I just kind of dumped a bunch of stuff on you. Do you want to talk about any of those before we move on? It's okay if you do. Again, if you're mad, it's okay. It's, that's how you feel when people attack you and it feels like an attack. They just all look like things a person on the outside looking in, but no, nobody that's ever bothered to step in. Sure. To see what really is. Sure. Is that true? Now, and, and, and frankly, that's exactly what's going on. These are perceptions of people who are on the outside. The prob- and the problem is how we choose to respond. We can either get angry at them that, they, that that's the way it is, or we can go out to them and show them they're wrong. Right? I mean, those, we, we, can either, we can either be offended by it, or we can be, um, we can be compelled and, and provoked to do something about it. Uh, and, and again, I have, I have found particularly with most agnostic people I've ever talked to, they're very open to conversations about this kind of stuff. And, and they're not mean about it, uh, partic- even, about, even about these kinds of things. Um, they're very interested in having conversations. Mia, yeah. I would say um, that I think that it's possible that a lot of agnostic people perhaps have these beliefs because they have been on the inside. Okay. Because they, yeah, that, that. Because the, on, the, on the outside looking in at a group of Christians, but perhaps they were raised Catholic and never, you know, and everybody, you know, was mm-hmm. this one way. Or they jumped from church to church and found that this was the general mm-hmm. idea and, and, and that they have personally in their lives found that a lot of these things were true and, um, and then have decided to yeah there there are and again that's that first category i talked about that yes. post-christian there i mean there are a good number of agnostic people who they were in the church at some point and i would actually be pretty shocked if we went around and did a survey that even of us in here who consider ourselves christians have never been hurt by a person in a church um have never encountered someone in a church who matches one or three or six of these things um now now again in, in no way does that mean that all Christians are like this. In no way does that mean that every agnostic person who believes these things is right or fair or whatever. But I think that we can all acknowledge that uh, the church is not a perfect place. I'm jumping ahead of myself, but we can all say that the church isn't a perfect place. We've got a pretty ugly history, and lots of people do lots of nasty things to other people in the name of Jesus. And we can't... We can't uh, build a truth-seeking relationship with someone unless we're willing to admit that. Um, so, yeah, Nick. I was just going to 
who on Amy's point, I grew up Catholic and then kind of got away for a while. I probably considered myself agnostic before coming back around. And all of those traits are what pushed me away because I saw all of them in my grandparents and my great grandparents that grew up. Okay. And so it pushed me away. Yeah. And it was, it was just so, it really is, look, look on it now as a, a more educated person, I can see it. Mm-hmm. And there, it takes, it takes a good amount of courage as a Christian to look at this list and say, if I'm really being honest, I can see that. If I'm really being honest, I have either known people in the church who do those things, or if you want to be really, really courageous, say, I have been judgmental. I have been hypocritical. I have been whatever these you've actually been. Um, that's really hard to do. But again, if you really want to build a, a, a great relationship with someone who is outside the church, being able to talk about those things uh gained you a tremendous amount of credit in their in their eyes because everyone knows how hard it is to air your own dirty laundry right i mean we all we all got the skeleton in our closet that only like a couple of people if anyone get to see and 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 when you can be honest about those things um it it really it really goes a long way and it helps prove your point that not everyone's like this i mean it it really goes if if you really want to show people that these perceptions are at, at best only true of some christians uh, a great way to do that is be able to be able to talk, have have honest conversations about them. Maybe to say, well, you know, not not everyone's like this. I, I know some people are. I know. So, okay. Again, the book is very good. It's very helpful. Um, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's very very good. So, um, and Dave Kinnaman's on Twitter and stuff, so he'll probably write you back if you tell him he's a big jerk. Um, <laughs> but. If you're again, if you're a numbers person, the, the data is all there for you. So, all right, um, let's talk about building some bridges to agnosticism, and then we'll go on into the important differences. Okay, first of all, both Christians and agnostics believe that questions are important. Uh, I heard someone up here in this group earlier saying that one of their favorite teachings of Jesus was "Love God with all your mind." And again, this is something we talked about last week. But uh, we don't believe that the Christian faith is meant to be unexamined. We don't believe that you have to check your brain when you walk into the church building. We think that, that loving God with your entire self, including your entire mind, we think that God uh, is big enough for all of our questions, and we believe Jesus is the truth. So we, we, don't think that, we don't think that any intellectual pursuit that's done honestly is going to lead us away from Christ. So we're not afraid of questions. And agnostic people love that because they're asking all kinds of questions. Uh, both of us believe that spirituality is good. Now, again, if atheism last week, there are a lot of atheists who think that all religion, all spirituality is dumb and, and evil and bad and hurtful. And, and agnostics don't think that. Most agnostics have a, a good respect for spirituality. Um, they believe in some kind of a supernatural world, a, a world beyond the material. Um, they might not know what it is. They might not be able to describe it. Some of the things that they believe might not make sense when you pull them out and hold them up next to each other. But they believe that spirituality is good. And so that can be a great place to start a conversation. Uh, another great place to have a conversation is by talking about experiences of God. And what I mean by this is that uh, I think all people have moments in their lives that transcend the ordinary. And again, I shared some of those earlier. Like when, like, and it can happen at the most random of times. Um, sometimes it is something really special, like you've just gotten to the top of a mountain or you've just dived into the ocean or you, you, know, you just held your kid for the first time or something like that. And you're like, There's, this is more than just atoms. 
right? Other other times it can just be the most random thing, like you happen to be listening to a cool song that you've heard a hundred times, but all of a sudden this time it's just different for that one verse or something like that. Um, it happens for me a lot in church when I'm hearing different worship music or something like that. Uh, but there are there are moments when you just feel that there's something more going on than than what you're experiencing in the moment. And, and agnostic people will be happy to talk about those moments, too. They'll be happy to share some of those transcendent moments. And those can be a great springboard in talking about, well, well who, what do you think that was that you were experiencing? Let me tell you what I think it was. You know, let me tell you, oh, well, how, did, how did that make you feel? What did you do? How often, you know, just, it, that's a great place to start. Another one we kind of already covered this, Christianity isn't perfect. And we can talk about that. We can be honest about our own history. And then again, uh, justice and equality matter. So uh, activities like Feed the Creek or something like that can be great ways to build connections with other people, particularly for those who are moralists. Obviously, they believe that being good is good, and we believe being good is good. <laughs> so uh, you can both seek justice together. You know, you can both seek to uh, some of the some things that are obviously objectively good and bad. Uh, you can seek those together, and that can be a great place to begin a relationship. Any questions about any of those? Yeah, Mike. Yeah, I have a question. Uh, where do you put the people that uh, like are into crystals and New Age? New Age stuff. Yeah. Uh, I would probably say that uh, the New Age people belong in that Venn diagram in the in the between. There's like agnosticism and New Age, and there's like some people that kind of overlap. Uh, we're going to talk next week about paganism, and that would probably. Uh, they're probably more in paganism because typically new age people have some very specific thoughts about the nature of reality and about the kinds of spirits that they're interacting with and what these different crystals or spells do. And so they would, they would, they would be more firmly in paganism than, than strict agnosticism. Um, though again, they're not mutually exclusive categories and there's going to be some overlap. So, okay, ready to talk about the differences? Here we go. First one is we need to talk about moralism. Uh, is good enough good enough? And here's where you'll find a lot of agnostic people. The, the, uh, something you hear a lot is that it's uh, many, many uh, same mountain, many paths. Okay, that all these different religions are just different ways to get to God. Okay, and it's like, it's like God is the, the mountain, and there's all these different ways you can get up the mountain, but they're all just going the same way. And so, again, what, what really matters is that you're good enough. Just be good enough. Just be good. And that's good enough. Uh, there's actually even a faith that was started uh, just a few, well, relatively few years ago. It was like 100 years ago, I think, but uh, called Baha'i. Some of you probably heard of it, but they basically said all of the teachings and all of the religions that agree are the real religion, and all of the teachings that don't agree are people added that in later. Because all religions are the same, and so they just kind of go through with the, they lay them all on top of each other, and whatever, whatever all matches, they cut out, and that's religion and everything else, they just pitch. So uh, that's a great example of this kind of thinking. Um, and, and, and I guess, uh, to be generous as I can with the Baha'i faith, at least they acknowledge that not all religions are the same. At least they acknowledge that there are things in religions that contradict each other. Uh, one of my personal pet peeves is when someone tells me, I think all religions are just basically the same. So I'm like, well, what that tells me is that you don't actually know much about any religion. Because it doesn't take very long, as you've probably seen during this class, that 
all of these religions are making competing truth claims about the nature of reality and the nature of God. And so I'm actually... I'm actually more interested in having a conversation with someone like a Baha'i person who says, well, there's elements of truth in every religion, but there's also elements of falsehood than I am with someone who says, well, they're all just the same and it doesn't really matter. Uh, because I actually think that there is truth and that if you say it's black and I say it's white, well, it could be black or it could be white or it might be red, but it can't be black and white unless it's a zebra, I guess, and that's not what we're talking about. So... Um, uh, so anyway, that, uh, this, is, this, is a, this is something that you'll hear, uh, not from all agnostics. In fact, there are some agnostics who would say, no, I think there's a way, I just haven't figured it out yet. But you will hear a lot of people who will say, same mountain, many paths. Now, what Christians would say is that the fundamental difference between that worldview and the Christian worldview is that humans are not good enough, that there is no such thing as good enough to get to God. And so the beauty of the incarnation is that it's not about us reaching God. It's not about us filling up enough good deeds on our quota or getting the scales to the right balance or whatever because none of that works. It's that God actually came down to us to rescue us. And so rather than us all getting to God by some path, it's we couldn't get to God and God came down and rescued us. And so when we talk about Jesus and the atonement and sin and all of these kinds of things, what we're affirming is that uh, God meets us in our brokenness and that there is no, um, and this is, this is actually, in my, in my way of thinking, spectacularly good news for a moralist because if you're a moralist, you're constantly having to make sure that you've done enough good stuff. You're constantly having to make sure that you've been more good than bad. And, you know, if you, had a, if you overslept and have a crabby day, like that, set you back. And, and if you have a, a particularly nasty life crisis where you're just in a really, really bad place, I mean, that can just, that can do a lot of damage uh, if, you, if you're constantly trying to earn and trying to be good enough and trying to keep everything in balance, you know, do more good than bad. And there's something really freeing about saying, well, it actually doesn't, you don't, it doesn't matter how hard you try, you can't do it. And, and, and that's only good news because God did everything for you. God did everything you couldn't do. And again, either Jesus' death on the cross paid for our sin or it didn't, but one of those two things is true. Not yeah, either way. Uh, oh, I need to say one more thing about this. There's, there's, another, there's another sentiment that I encounter quite a lot when I talk to agnostic persons who say, you know, God is so beyond us that we can't know God. It's that, that group of agnostics who say we can't know. It's not that I don't know, it's that we can't. And to a, to a degree, Christian theologians would agree with them. They would say, actually, yes, God is so beyond us that we, our minds cannot comprehend God. That if, if it were all about us reaching God, we would be lost because God is so God and we are so not God that, it, again, it's like an ant trying to comprehend a jet plane, right? Just like, mm, no, no way it's going to happen. Okay. But again, the incarnation says, yeah, well, that's the whole point. When because we could not understand God, God became one of us and showed us the way to God. So then when Thomas is ta talking to Jesus and John, and he says, Jesus, we show us the way. And, and Jesus goes, Thomas, you silly goose. If you know me, you know the way. Because Jesus is the full revelation of God. And when we see Jesus, we see God. And so we would, on one hand, we would say, yeah, we agree that we can't comprehend God, but that's why we have Jesus. That's why God became human.
Okay. Uh, another question that we would have, uh, a place where we disagree with agnostics, is about human fulfillment. So we would say that there are a couple of ways that you can choose to go. And one of them is towards personal freedom, and one of them is towards uh, self-sacrifice. And we would just fundamentally disagree on this point. We would say, you know what? Um, we don't actually think that the most good and the most human flourishing comes when everyone gets to do whatever they want. Uh, we think that actually we were created to be givers the way that God is a giver. And Jesus showed us that when he died on the cross for us, when he gave himself completely up for us, he showed us what the true path to life is. And it's not through self-aggrandizement uh, and, and acquiring. It's through giving and self-sacrifice. So, so he says, he tells us in, again in John 15, should have just read John 15 tonight and sent everyone home. He says, no one has greater love than when they give themselves up for a friend. That the, the, the most human that you can possibly be, the fullest you that you can possibly be, is when you are giving yourself for someone else. Not when you're acquiring, not when you're taking, not when you're, not when you're amassing the freedom to do whatever you want. But when you're giving yourself for someone else, when you're sacrificing something that is dear to you for the good of someone else, that's when you're, that's when you're the most fully human. That's when you're the most like you were created to be. And that's different. We might be wrong and they might be right, but it's different. And I think we're right. So do we find, do we find happiness differently? Uh, yeah, so uh, Jesus would say it this way. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Yeah, he would, he would say, um, you're piling up, all, or, or another way he said it, right? Man, can, man cannot serve two masters. Either he will love the one and he will hate the other, or he will cling to the one and despise the other. But you cannot serve both God and wealth. Do they even believe they have a soul? Some do, Sure. But they, 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 uh, you could talk to anyone, even an atheist, about a self, even if you don't talk about a soul. You, you could say that, you know, I have, I have this person that has certain wants and needs and desires, and is the most happiness going to come from listening to those desires? You know, is it, is it whatever I want, that's what I should get? And, and is, is the greatest good coming whenever I can sate any of my desires whenever I want? Which is where our technology is taking us. I mean, it is. It is. Right? And, and Jesus would say, no, that's actually, uh, that's actually a, an illusion and a lie. And if you listen to your desires, they will lead you astray because, because you're bent away from God. Your desires are bent away from God. And so the things that yourself tells you that you want are not the things you should be listening to. God, at, well, here, we're jumping ahead. So yeah, get off my soapbox. The other thing, so the other thing is we talk about who is really the king of the world. Okay, are we the kings of our own castles or is this God's? Whose way is right, my way or God's way? That's the first question that we find in the scriptures. Right? Did God really say that you shouldn't eat of any of the trees? That's not true. If you eat of this tree, you'll be like God. You'll know the difference between good and evil. And from that point forward, we have constantly been trying to do our own thing and say, I've got this. I can be the king of the castle. I can be the lord of my domain. My way is the best way. 
And again, who, who in here can't say that they've ever had the thought, you know, if they would just do it my way, things would be fine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, oh, yeah, we all do. I mean, that's, that's that. That's that sinful impulse that says my way is the right way. And the scriptures tell us over and over and over again that we cannot trust our desires. That, that we are fallen, that we are bent away from God. And that, that's why we need, that's, that's why the scriptures are so often so counterintuitive. Like Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for people who persecute you. And we go, we can't do that. You can't love people who are trying to hurt you and take from you and destroy yourself. You can't pray for them. Jesus says, that's what God does. God sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God died for everyone. God forgave the people that were in the act of killing him. So yeah, it doesn't make any sense, but do you trust that God's way is the right way or not? That's different. Maybe we know better than God, or maybe God knows better than us, but it's not both. I think God probably knows better. Um, last one we need to talk about is where is God? Uh, actually, it's not the last one. The next one. Where is God? Again, in deism, God is above. God is removed. God occasionally intervenes, maybe, sometimes, probably. But God is distant. God isn't particularly knowable. And what Christians confess is, no, God is, uh, the, the, the scriptures describe God as a sustainer. And they say over and over that God not only created all things, but sustains all things. That the only reason electrons keep spinning around nucleuses and all of that kind of stuff is because God is actively sustaining the world. And God is this, this real intimate presence that is around us all the time, that is working around us all the time. And we only choose whether we'll be attentive to that presence or ignore that presence. But it doesn't change where God is. It only it changes how, how much we are aware of God. And, and, and again, depending on the person that you're talking to, an agnostic person might actually not have a lot of problem with this. Again, they might be a, a prayerful person, or they might say that they have these senses that God is around them. Um, or they might not. This is the spectrum. Uh, sadly, I know lots of Christians who live as though God is more of a deist than a sustainer also. Uh, so I'm going to let that be a little reality check also. Okay, last one. Let me get all these up here. Uh, the last one is how we look at institutions. Uh, while we would agree with agnostic persons uh, that institutions are flawed and that the church is flawed, we also believe that the church is the bride of Christ and that it is the visible presence of God in the world. And so no matter how broken it is or parts of it are at times God is God still loves the church and still God is working in and through the church and we confess that as Christians we need the church uh, there's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian there's no such thing as a person without a community um, to be gross and make a walking dead reference a Christian who's not a part of a church is like a severed arm right it, it has no life it can't do anything 
It's, it's, a, it's a limb detached from a body. And so, so we, would, we would fully acknowledge all of this, the warts and the scales and the flaws in the church, but we would also say that doesn't mean that God has abandoned it, and it doesn't mean that we can abandon it. Uh, God loves the church. We are called to love the church, and, uh, and that, that's the end of it. Okay, so again, to review, uh, one, we disagree about whether we are good enough. We disagree about the path to human fulfillment. We disagree about who is really the king of the world. We disagree sometimes, probably, depends on the person, about where God is, whether he is distant or near. And we disagree about the role and the nature of institutions. So uh, to conclude tonight, I just want to encourage you again, there are... There are so many different kinds of people who call themselves agnostic and so many different beliefs that get lumped into agnosticism. And uh, if, you, if you know people who are agnostic, who you are considering forming a truth-seeking relationship with, that is really the best way to do it. Do it as on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Don't be afraid of conversation. Don't be afraid of saying, I don't know. We talked a little bit about that last week. But again, being able to say, that's a really good question and I'm not sure, I don't really have a great answer for that is fine. It's actually, again, it will gain you a lot of credibility, uh, not feeling like you have to have every single answer. I assume that you don't know everything. I certainly don't know everything. It's probably as painfully aware to you by now. And um, it's okay to say I don't know. It's okay to not know, and it's okay to go try to find resources. Uh, part of my job is to equip you with resources. So if there's someone and they have a question about something crazy and you don't know the answer, come talk to me. And if I don't know, I've got lots of people I can ask too. So uh, that, that's part of my job is to equip you in that area. So uh, I hope that this is encouraging to you, and I hope that you feel equipped to go and begin some spiritual conversations with some agnostic people. Uh, are there any questions? Uh, I want to close this in prayer, but I want to give you a chance to ask some questions about all those disagreements. When you talked initially about the, the different types of agnostics, yes. kind of grouped them into mm -hmm. groups, and going to the, the non-theist, yeah. uh, because the non-theist that I know probably would not consider themselves that they would consider themselves more of an agnostic. Okay. Uh, I mean, more of the one of the other kind that you know. Yeah. Maybe not a seeker, but you know, well, I believe, but I just not interested. Uh huh. Is there, is there any way to get them uh, to engage them in the conversation that can lead to more than a yawn? Um, yeah, so the question is, if you know a, a non-theist person who's just really not interested in spiritual things, how can you engage them in a conversation in a way that doesn't create just more boredom? And obviously, again, they're not interested, which is why it's a problem in the first place. Uh, probably depends on how creative you are. Uh, I, I have a firm conviction that God is always working in everyone's life. And uh, as, as Nazarenes, we believe in what's called prevenient grace we've talked about before, which means that God is always working in everyone all the time. Uh, and so uh, I've heard someone describe it one time as the fingerprints of God are evident in everyone's life if you're willing to look for them. And so it, it could be something as uh, crazy as like finding a, a hobby or a common interest that you guys have and being able to tie that to spiritual things. Like if, if you guys both like hiking or something like that, that's, you know, being out in nature is a pretty good way to bring up spiritual things and conversations. Um, and, and I would think particularly with people like that, a lot of it is just building a good, solid friendship with them so that you are a part of their life when they have those encounters, those moments, those transcendent moments with God, either good or bad. You know, a lot of those people 
unfortunately, don't become open to spiritual conversations until they experience some kind of a loss or a tragedy or something like big, like, you know, again, as awful as it was in the wake of Sandy Hook, a lot of people were asking really hard questions, you know, and, and again, if you've built credibility with a person like that, you have the opportunity to listen to them and to um, just kind of like hurt with them. And, and that can be the doorway into spiritual conversations. Uh, so, so it could, it, in a lot of cases, it could just be just like being with them, continuing to pray for them, uh, and continuing to just be sensitive to when you can have those conversations. And, you know, if you, if you drop a hook out there and they don't take it, that's okay. Like talk about something else, you know, and, and you just kind of have to keep being a presence in their life and being affirming and, uh, and, and building a friendship with them and being ready for when they're ready. Yeah, Mike. Have you ever seen this bumper sticker, Scholars Religious Symbols? Coexist? Coexist. The Coexist bumper sticker? Yeah. Yeah. So are those people agnostics? Uh, probably depends. I mean, I you know, uh, first of all, I guess I don't disagree with the basic sentiment of the Coexist bumper sticker, which would be we all disagree, but we probably don't need to kill each other over it. Um, I'm, I'm okay with that. I will support that. Um, however, there are obviously other layers of what that can look like. Um, there would probably be people who would use that bumper sticker who would say, you know, one mountain, many paths. Um, it, again, it probably depends on who the person is and why they put the bumper sticker on their car in the first place. So. I see quite a few of them though. It's kind of <laughs> disturbing. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, after the after the wars in Europe, the religious wars in Europe that took up a lot of the 15, 16, 1700s, uh, a lot of the atheism that's around in Europe now is a direct result of that. People just got tired of everyone fighting about religion, and they were like, well, they weren't really fighting about religion, but that's the easy excuse when you fight. Uh, and so there were a lot of people that said, look, if, if all religion does is cause wars, I'm done with it. And they set it down. You know, in the wake of 9-11, and again, with all the noise that a lot of uh, Christian fundamentalist groups make and stuff like that, there are a lot of people in our culture that are saying, like, if that's, if that's what religion does to people, I don't, why can't we all just get along? Uh, now, again, I don't, I think, there's, I think there's better answers to that than that, but I, I, do, I do sense a lot of that as well. Um, so, probably depend. Short answer is probably. Yeah, and again, tolerance gets such an ugly name. Like, yeah, probably. Um, but again, if tolerance means let's all just agree not to hurt each other in the name of our own religions, I'm not opposed to that kind of tolerance. Uh, if it means let's all just believe whatever we believe in the privacy of our own hearts and never talk about where we disagree, I'm not okay with that. Because I think these conversations matter. If I'm wrong, I want to know I'm wrong. And I'm never going to know I'm wrong by only being around people that agree with me. You know? And I, hopefully, people, other people believe that same way as well. And again, that's where, that's where it comes back to. If we believe Jesus is the truth, we don't have to be afraid of those conversations. You know, I don't have to be afraid that I'm wrong. If, if Jesus is the truth, then however I'm wrong, I'm going to be, when I, when I become more correct, I'm going to look more like Jesus. So... Uh, you know, that's, that's a hard question to answer. Uh, that probably depends a lot more on what the Holy Spirit's doing in that person's life. Um, you know, I, again, I've, I've heard, I've heard conversations where a, like, I've heard a story, oh, okay, so my friend Matt 
tells a story about how he was uh, he was out walking one day and uh, trying to find some people to have a spiritual conversation with, and he encountered a Buddhist. And he sat down with this Buddhist person and said, hey, could I ask, like, are you interested in having conversation having conversation about something spiritual? The guy said, yeah, I'd love to. And he shows his books because he's studying. And uh, Matt says, well, just tell me a little bit about your spiritual background. And the guy goes, I'm a hardcore Buddhist. Like, my whole family's Buddhist. And they're like, whoa, man, you're way more Buddhist than I am. Uh, and in and, and Matt's head, he's like, uh-oh, like, you know, this person is, you know, nope. Uh, but, but he says, he, so he says, well, can you just tell me a little bit more about that? And he goes, yeah, here's the thing I don't understand. He's like, like, I'm really, really into Buddhism and I love Buddha, but like Buddha repeatedly said, I'm not God, don't worship me. And, and I have lots of family members who worship him as a God, even though Buddha says not to. He's like, I just wish that there was a person who, if he was God, would just tell everyone that he was God and that they should worship him. And Matt goes, well, can I show you something? And so they read some passages out of John where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one may come to the Father, and all that stuff. And the guy looks up and he goes, oh, well, I guess I'm a Christian now. And so he and Matt prayed together, and he's been a Christ follower ever since. So I, you, you just you don't know. You don't know when the Holy Spirit has brought someone to a place where they want to meet Jesus. Um, and, and I – there uh, – We'll probably talk about this more in the last week, but there's a, a really helpful tool, uh, just a visualization of, of how people come to Christ. If you imagine like negative 10 is like really, really, really far from Christ and zero is that point of conversion. Um, and then 10 is like, you know, basically you're like Mother Teresa or something like that. Um, you know, there, it, you just never know what the pro, you know, there are people who might hang out at negative 0.5 for years and there might just be one something that's holding them back. And it just does for years. Or there might be people that go from like negative eight to you know two in a day. You just you just don't know. And again, that's why that's why having these personal relationships matters. And it's why being sensitive to the Holy Spirit matters a lot. Mia, were you gonna jump in? Uh, I was just gonna say that I I just wanted to respond that I think that um, a lot of people think that agnostics are just sort of like, and you sort of paint the picture that it's sort of like a squishy, willy-nilly, just, you know, kind of fluffy thing, but that is their belief. Right. And so I don't know that they're any easier to convert to Christianity yeah. just because they might be like, well, maybe God is or maybe God isn't. It doesn't mean that they're, you know, going to just follow. Right, right. Be beliefs but are, that, yeah. The things you've been talking about, that is their belief. Yeah. So it's not... It's not any less firmly held than anyone right. else's beliefs. Right. Yeah, good. Anyone else? Okay, well, I want to close this in prayer, and then uh, we have a few more minutes before you have to go pick up kids and things like that, and you can hang out, or if you need to go early, that's fine too. God, thank you so much for this night. We are grateful for the chance that we have together and to consider uh, this whole group of people that uh, just has a lot of questions. And we're thankful that you are a God who is bigger than questions and who uh, welcomes questions and who welcomes uh, your children who are imperfect and who make mistakes and who uh, are a part of very imperfect institutions. And so we ask as we build these truth-seeking relationships with agnostic people uh, that we would be able to respectfully engage them and their beliefs and that they would feel honored by us, that they would feel understood by us, and that we would be able to have really good uh, truth-seeking conversations with them where both we and they come to a fuller understanding of who you are. Uh, we thank you so much for this opportunity that we have together and to talk about these things and to pray together.
And we, uh, we offer all of these prayers in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Uh, next week is our last religion. It's paganism. So uh, come back next week, week ready to talk about that.